if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. I, I will mention just a word while you're um, turning uh, that we are going to gather for a concentrated and a very special uh, time of prayer for the Dumas family as they enter into uh, this great challenge, a challenge of separation, a challenge of uh, seeking appropriate uh, uh, medical help uh, for, uh, for Jonathan. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, we will be here at, at 6 o'clock uh, this, this evening. Again, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 15 in just a moment. There's a reason that what we call cliches tend to persist and get repeated time and time again. One of them is the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, that doesn't apply universally or 100% of the time, but it applies a lot of the time. And it applies to the reality of our assessment of the world. Uh, that is, if you were to Seth the Apostle Paul in the midst of uh, uh, 2023, uh, the United States of America, he would have a hard time possibly figuring things out. But at the same time, once he began to speak to people, and once he began to observe, he would probably very quickly say, you are dealing with the same issues that I was de dealing with as I made my three missionary journeys through that Mediterranean, the ancient world around the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, that is, man has not really changed. Man still persists in their depravity and in their rebellion against God. And that, that's a terrible reality. And we struggle with that reality on a, on a daily basis, how, how the, the world and evil men and Satan himself and our own evil impulse, how, how those realities constantly assault and afflict us. Those things are the same. But it's good news, as much as that's bad news, the good news is the gospel has not changed one iota. The, the same gospel, the same remedy for that which plagues humanity, for that which plagues the world, still is relevant and applicable today. The truth is still the truth. The means by which God saves people is still the means by which God saves people. So the reality is our mission hasn't changed. Our mandate hasn't changed. In so many ways, really, our methodology hasn't changed. Oh, there's a, a veneer that looks very different. But you strip away this uh, modern to postmodern veneer, and we would find, again, that this message of the gospel still is that which the unbelieving world needs to hear, and it's what the believing world needs to hear as well, the message of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it be said of us, as it said in this text of Paul and his associates, that they are turning the world upside down. Because see, the gospel has always been that, that will turn the world upside down, in reality, men inside out. And so, we proclaim that great 
And that unchanging truth. In a, in a world that sometimes they say it's ever-changing. But again, what else? There's the reality that it's never-changing. And so let's look this morning as we continue with the story, the record, the narrative of Paul's second missionary endeavor. And he arrives in the city of Thessalonica, and as we read, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set, uh, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is a, another king Je whose name is Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Pray with me. Father, once again, we confess our dependence upon you. Uh, you have given us your truth, but we still depend upon the workings of your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, uh, to give us the ability to communicate, and uh, for those that sit here today, uh, the ability to hear and to understand. We depend on your Spirit to apply your truth to our lives, Lord. Uh, there are so many different needs and situations that are uh, a part of the lives of those gathered here today, and there's no way in speaking uh, to this crowd that I, in my own uh, power and means, could address every situation. But your truth, your word, your power addresses each person just exactly where they are. And so we confess we're dependent upon you for that which you would do uh, with your truth. I pray that you would bless us this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we're, in essence, halfway through uh, the second of the three missionary journeys that Luke uh, describes Paul as uh, taking. 
and uh, we're halfway through the second one. So we're halfway through, essentially, the, the career of Paul, uh, this great uh, first century, first generation, in essence, uh, missionary uh, for the sake of uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everywhere he turned, he faced opposition. Wicked men, whether they be the wicked men of the Jews or the wicked men of the Gentile world, sought to uh, oppose, uh, to defeat, uh, to discourage uh, the great missionary, the Apostle Paul. And as I have often said, that to the degree that we're faithful, uh, to the degree that we are courageously telling others about Jesus Christ, is to a corresponding yet opposite degree to which uh, the world will weigh in against us. That the, the gospel message has always been that which afflicts the conscience of men. And many times when someone's conscience is aff afflicted, they respond in great anger, in great violence even, against those who speak these truths. But as Paul did this, and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to me, that we're constantly reminded that Paul, while constantly persecuted and constantly opposed, even disappointed and, and, and sometimes betrayed by those that he loved, was still one that thought it was important to speak a, a word of encouragement. We're often told that he encouraged uh, those who were uh, believers. And I've told you before, one of the things that, that I would desire to do is to be an encourager uh, to the church. If you went back to chapter 14 and verse 19, we're told that in Lystra, they, they stoned Paul. The intent was to, to kill him. But even after being stoned and knowing he was about to leave the area, he sought to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and then, by the way, telling them, it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That, indeed, I have presented to you and proclaimed to you the gospel, the good news, the message of salvation, uh, that which by, uh, by which we may be saved from our sins, may be delivered uh, from the wrath to come. But the way in this world is going to be difficult. You're, you're going to face challenges. And I often, in kind of describing myself, I, I do not think of myself as an optimist nor a pessimist. I try to be a realist. And, and that is, uh, I, I'm not really good at patting backs and hugging necks and giving superficial little ditties that when you're in the midst of tragedies, you know, well, now, 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 it's all going to be fine. Because you know what? Sometimes, now, 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 it's not going to be so fine. Now, there is that ultimate sense for the believer, it will ultimately be fine. But sometimes in this world, the heartaches are very, very real and they're very, very powerful. And we want to encourage people with the truth of the gospel, that in this world, affliction will indeed come. I often 
both in funeral services and in private conversation with families. The only thing that I can say to you at this point is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in your loss, and whether you're standing by the bedside awaiting the death of a loved one, or we're standing by the graveside having already experienced the death of the loved one, it's going to hurt. And it hurts for a long time. And so the only thing that's really pertinent is that this individual that we love knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that our hope is not in medicine or psychology or politicians or anything else that might try to fix the issues of this world. The one encouragement is the word of the Lord. It is the word of the gospel. And so, again, the Apostle Paul had to tell them, it's going to be a tough life. It's going to be a tough way to go. But that doesn't for one moment change the fact that the gospel is true. And it is the singular hope for all who would live in this fallen world with any sense of hope. And so we're told here in our, in our text that Paul is going to travel to travel through two large cities on his way from Philippi, which he had left because of persecution, on his way to Thessalonica. He's going to go from coast to coast across the northern part of that Greek peninsula. He is going to journey on the Ignatian Way, this very famous east to west road built by uh, the Romans, and he's going to travel about 100 miles. Now, one thing that the commentators kind of note, and it's just a, a point of interest, that by mentioning the, the kind of the wayfair points, the, the two cities that he passed through, that uh, doesn't mention him doing any ministry there. Uh, did he just stop and spend the night or something? And all of these cities are roughly 30 miles apart, uh, far more than an individual could walk in a day. And so some would think that possibly uh, the people in Philippi provided uh, transportation, horses, or something like that, uh, that they could ride to cover the territory fairly quickly. However they traveled, remember they'd just been beaten with rods, and the journey was difficult. However uh, they took it, but yet they limped their way across the peninsula for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel, eventually winding up in Thessalonica. And we're told that upon arriving in Thessalonica, uh, they found the synagogue. Interestingly enough, in Amphipolis and Apollonia, there are no ruins that suggest that there was a synagogue in those cities at that time. Remember, the criteria is there had to be 10 Jewish men to establish a synagogue. There was not a synagogue in Philippi, there was just a place that some of the women had gathered who had heard the, the, the truth of Judaism and been kind of drawn to it. They were there praying by the river. But So Paul passes through these. Again, his commitment to the Jew first, his method, go into the synagogue, begin to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so we're told that he finds the synagogue. He goes in it, that, verse 2, that was his custom to, to go in there and they put up with him for three Sabbaths, okay? Now, again, commentators kind of go different ways on this. I'm increasingly convinced, while, while previously I would have said probably 
Paul stayed three to four weeks to cover the three Sabbaths, and then he left, okay? But there's a couple of things that he says in the letter to the church at Philippi. He speaks of them refreshing him two different times while in Thessalonica. And then also uh, he speaks of laboring day and night uh, in his letter back to the church at Thessalonica. So it may be that while he was only in the synagogue three Sabbaths, he had a longer ministry there in which he planted uh, the seeds of the gospel. And of course we know why would he only be three Sabbaths in the synagogue if he stayed longer than three Sabbaths? It's because what? They told him not to come back. He was driven from uh, that synagogue uh, after uh, uh, three uh, Sabbaths. And you have to, at some level, if, if we were Paul, if we were Paul, God, really? You, you had that guy appear to me in a vision and say, come over here. I, I was going somewhere else. And you brought me over here to be abused and persecuted, beaten, rejected, driven from town to town. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite a plan you have there, God, for the expansion of the gospel. But so be it. The Apostle Paul was uh, committed. He was devoted. And he was ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel. So, we're told in verse 2, he goes to the synagogue, three Sabbath, and, and there's, there's three words there that caught my attention. He reasoned with them, explaining to them, and proving to them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So, they could agree that the Old Testament, what they, they had in their scrolls, uh, was the Word of God. They, they didn't have to fight about that, that God had revealed Himself uh, in what was their Bible, again, the Old Testament, and He reasoned with them. And if you looked at the word translated as uh, reasoned, it's dialegomai, and to use your imagination a bit, you can see that it's a word from which our English word dialogue is derived, okay? So he dialogued with the Jews uh, in the synagogue at Thessalonica. So one approach to introducing people, to instructing people in terms of the gospel is to dialogue. That is two-way communication. You hear me talk a lot of times about how, much, how fond I am of leading small groups because I like to answer your questions. I, th I think that's a, a good way uh, to, to learn, for me to learn, well, here's where I'm not communicating clearly. This is where I need to refine that which I'm saying. This is where I, I need to say more for the sake of clarity. And so you tell me these things when we interact in that way. And so it's a, a great way of both evangelism but also of, of instruction uh, for uh, the church. And so he is making a case. He is, he is making the, the plausible and biblical case that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one. Uh, Jesus is uh, the Christ. He's answering their objections as they dialogue there in uh, the synagogue. And, and I'm sure while we don't have a, a precise record of all that went on, he spoke to him about the 
great realities of sin and a coming judgment, the, the reality of, of our own personal sin and uh, God's judgment upon uh, that sin and the uh, futility. Remember, there's Gentiles there in the synagogue too, the, the whole futility of both the idols of the ancient world, but also the way in which Judaism had been perverted uh, to just be simply a set of external types of standards. And so he had much to say to them to, to prove, to argue for the truth that Jesus uh, is the Christ. And I can imagine as he began to say that all of these things that you're doing, these things are ultimately empty rituals. They're not going to bring you closer to God, which would have been very offensive to the Jews of that day. And then, not only does he reason, it says he explains uh, to them. And that word is, conveys the idea of making open. Making open. Um, that prior to his explanation, to his proving, they could not get their minds around the claim that Jesus is the promised one that he is the Messiah. They just, they, just, they, just, they just don't have a capacity to understand that. But as he explains that Jesus actually is the fulfillment of all that God promised under the old covenant, that, that he uh, fulfills even this, and I believe he might have went into this, the covenant of works, where Adam has failed. As Paul will explain in Romans 5, Jesus has succeeded as the second Adam. And that in his death, God is satisfied. That, that it is the effective sacrifice that can save. That, that all of the sacrifices over all of the centuries pointed forward to a sacrifice that could save. Namely, the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this Christ had defeated both sin and Death. And so he's explaining all of these things so a, they can understand them. And moving forward, he proves them, proving that it was necessary. It's an interesting word here, paratithamai. And it's, and it's the idea of placing something alongside something else so that by the way of comparison, you see the, the, the point of the argument, so to speak. And so what was he laying side by side? The person and work of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and here are the Scriptures that he fulfills. These are the Scriptures that, that point to this Jesus. And so if you look at them, there's a correspondence between what God said was going to happen and what has happened in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus indeed, was the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, that he was ultimately the blessing uh, to Abraham, that he was the lion of the tribe of Judah, that he was the king from David's line, that he was the one born of a virgin, he was the one born in Bethlehem, he is the prince of peace, he is the suffering servant, he is the divine king, he is the resurrected son of God, and through him the Spirit has been poured out as Joel prophesied. And tongues are actually a sign that God has moved on, that, that the, the age of the Jews has, has passed. 
And that, that event at Pentecost was a sign of God's displeasure on the Jews and that he was going to send the gospel into the world for the salvation of the Gentiles. And so he is laying down the truth of the word of God. And that, that was 12 things there. There's probably a lot more than that. But just 12 that came to my mind really easily. And he says, all of these things have been fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's the one promised. He's, he's the Messiah. He, he is the Davidic king. And we see there in verse 4 the effect of the message. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So the gospel had its effect that there were people that believed that, that God was saving people uh, through this proclamation, this threefold reasoning, explaining, and proving that, that God, Paul was making this plausible biblical case, and the Spirit was at work bringing people to the place through which and in which they would believe. And so both Gentiles and Jews uh, were being saved. There's always a but, though, isn't there? Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. Again, they were angry. And so they, they, they scheme and, and they plot in their jealousy, taking some wicked men of the rabble, pe people that were of no account, of no reputation there within the community. And there's, listen, there are always people. They just want trouble. That's all they're, they're just looking to be a disturbance. They're looking to be an aggravation. They're, they're just looking for someone to just kind of pour gas on their fire so they can create trouble. And people that proclaim the gospel constantly run into that. And so uh, they had no unity other than what? We're unified that we're going to oppose this. We, we just want to fight. We just, we just want to, to, to struggle. We, 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 just, we just want to get into it and cause uh, disruption, uh, disunity, disharmony, all of these uh, things. And so they go to where they think uh, Paul and Silas are, the house of, of Jacob, uh, Jason, and they, they want to drag uh, them out. Uh, and notice here the, the, uh, the accusations. Verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. It's an interesting thing. Obviously, that's not really a word-for-word -word translation, okay? And it's interesting how uh, sometimes the translators take a little bit of, of, of license. Uh, literally, something along this line, they have incited all mankind to rebellion or revolt. It's probably a, a closer. But again, sometimes figurative language, hyperboles, communicates the, the weightiness of, of what's being said. And so the, the gospel has turned the world upside down and inside out. That's what the gospel does, okay? That, that's the way uh, that it works. It creates a disturbance. And it always has and it always will. And so while Paul and Silas had already le left, so they can't do anything to them. The civil authorities, verse 8, they're all shook up. They're, 
They probably don't care other than this. We don't want people so disturbed that there's a problem in the community, okay? Uh, certainly something that would bring authorities from the outside to our fair city uh, to help us put down uh, this problem. And they do an interesting thing there. Look at verse 9. They secure some type of security bond from Jason for what? And many people think it's not so much their bond to get out of jail. It's a bond that guarantees that Paul will not show back up, that Paul won't return, that if Paul were to return to Thessalonica, Jason would forfeit that bond is what at least some commentators think is going on there. And if you remember in the letter to the Thess Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul speaks of his great desire to go back. And then he says what? Satan hindered us. And usually we think of that in terms of, of, of spiritual warfare, and I'm sure that was part of the reality. But there's probably a practical reality. Uh, they had established something there that was a hindrance to Paul going back. And to be sure, uh, you know, civil authority wasn't going to stop Paul uh, from uh, preaching uh, the gospel. And certainly Satan uh, utilizes uh, the schemes and the protocols and the procedures of all types of men to do what he can to thwart and frustrate the advance of the gospel. And so uh, Paul ministers there in Thessalonica, proclaims the gospel, and the gospel uh, has its effect. And again, in writing back to the Thessalonian church, he says that so many of you turned from idols to the living God, which probably indicates a lot of Gentiles were saved, again, uh, in the course of that crusade there in uh, Thessalonica. So they leave there. Verse 10, they're going to go to Berea. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. In other words, they've got to slip out of town. Uh, uh, the, the authorities are, are looking for them. Uh, upon their arrival in Berea, where do they go? Now, what's, what is the cliche? If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. Uh, or what's the other one? Uh, what's the definition of insanity? doing the same old thing, expecting a different result. But here goes Paul. Where does he go? He goes back to the synagogue, okay? Uh, uh, you can't say he wasn't persistent. So he goes back, and again, I believe this was under mandate from God. You go to those Jews. And so he does, and he begins this same procedure of proclaiming uh, the truth. And really a, a fascinating phrase there in verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. More noble. That's, that's really, and, and the Greek there is eugenus, eugenus. And what does Paul mean? Were they just uh, better bred people? innately superior, of, of higher intellect or uh, of higher uh, moral uh, convictions? What made them more noble? And what did being more noble have to do with receiving 
the gospel. In other words, if we were to go out proclaiming the gospel in public, I'm looking for people that are noble. I, want, I only want to talk to the noble among us because that's the only ones that's going to respond to the gospel. Sure. It's a very strange way of describing what was going on. Now, in Wesleyan theology, and I'm not an expert on Wesleyan theology. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. But I'm not an expert on Wesleyan theology. But there, there is something called prevenient grace. Grace before operative grace. Um, even Jonathan Edwards would speak of uh, the Spirit's preparation for his ultimate work of salvation. So I, I don't know what was exactly going on here. But I do believe, and I've said this for years, and maybe, maybe I'm, I'm wrong. Could be. But God must always both go before us, go with us, and come behind us. If there is to be an effective work of, of the gospel, we, we pray uh, when we've sent folks uh, out to do these foreign mission projects. God, we pray you, that you're at work long before we get there. So it's hard to know exactly what that looks like, what it feels like, what he's doing. But God, that when they hear the gospel, they will recognize it. That's what I've been looking for. That's what I need. That's what will satisfy my soul. And so, whatever was going on, it wasn't that they were innately, intuitively, a superior people. They weren't. But that God had prepared them to hear the gospel message from the lips of the apostle Paul. And so they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul would speak, and then they'd open their Bibles. And again, something very similar to what I often challenge you with. Let me speak, let me preach. You go to the Word of God, and you determine if I have rightly divided, if I've told you the truth. It's, it's interesting, and I got drawn into a discussion several times recently. But it is an interesting dynamic. I'm accountable to God for you. Okay, I will give an account for every single one of you. Everyone that has chosen to identify themselves with North Clay Baptist Church. I have a unique accountability before God, as do the others that serve as elders here with me. Okay? In a sense, I do more because what? I stand here more. Okay? So every time I speak, I will give an account for every, every word uh, that I speak. Now, this ought to scare you. Everybody listening? And you have responsibility for me. Isn't that scary? I mean, kind of like when we do these parent-child dedications, you know, we remind them, you're, you're responsible for this little type that God has entrusted to you. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? You know, I remember when our oldest was born, I'm like, I don't have a clue. I'm a kid raising a kid. I, I don't know what to do with this child. What, what, who, what were you thinking, God? And I know sometimes you look up here and go, God, what in the world were you thinking? But there really is. There really is a mutual accountability according to the Word of God. Okay, I don't come out there and straighten you out unbiblically, and you don't come and straighten me out 
unbiblically. But we do examine the Scriptures and we hold each other accountable for the standard of the truth of the Word of God. That's what we do. That's what we do. And that seems to be a bit of what was going on. They were hearing and they were taking the Scriptures and go, whoa. And they were going, oh, whoa. He was right. Oh, whoa. That's true. Oh, yes. I see it. Again, that God was opening their minds to see that which was obscure, where in the case of the religious leaders that Jesus encountered in John chapter 5, you examine the Scriptures daily because you think in them you shall have eternal life, but you're missing the big point that it's those Scriptures that you claim you love and that you know. Those things are that which points to me, to the Christ. And they were getting it. That which Paul was saying in regards to the Word of God, to the Old Covenant, what we call the Old Testament, they were seeing for the first time, those things are pointing to Jesus. This is the gospel. This is what God has done to save us from our sins. Wherever the gospel goes, trouble can't be far behind. Verse 13, those Jews from Thessalonica. Yep. They, they, they couldn't leave well enough alone. Well, he's, he's not here anymore. No, we're going to travel 30-plus miles. And we're going to go down to Thessalonica. I mean, it's not like, you know, they, they got in their Mercedes and drove down there. It takes a little effort to walk 30 miles or ride a horse 30 miles, whatever the case may be. But they show up to create trouble there as Paul is preaching uh, the gospel. And so when they appear... The brothers immediately sent Paul off. And again, it's not up to us to question in the sense of, well, Paul should have stayed and fought them. I believe Paul did exactly what God wanted him to do. That his time, his ministry was done there. And in preservation of his life to take the gospel further, these men wisely see to it that he gets out of the city. Paul left. But what stayed? The gospel stayed. It's kind of it's like what we see at the end of the book. Paul was in chains. But everywhere the gospel had been preached, what? The gospel was unchained. It had been unleashed upon uh, the world. And so Paul uh, secures his escape uh, to uh, eventually going uh, to Athens. Well, let's look at several things very quickly, just in, in, in some summary. The problem of the mission and message. I mean, any reasonable reading, you read the book of Acts, and you go, whoa, wow. I mean, our presuppositions, our default setting is as long as I'm faithful, as long as I'm pleasing to God, it ought to go well with me, Right? And that what you think? I ought not get sick. You know, my kids ought to be great. You, you know, life ought to be great. My job ought to be great. You name it. On and on and on it goes. Well, that's sure not the pattern of Paul's life. Trouble follows his faithful proclamation. And so, the Jew, if, you, if you're preaching to a Jewish audience where it was 2,000 years ago, where it's today, the gospel is still foolishness. The idea of a crucified Messiah is absolutely foolishness. The idea that what they're engaged in, their religion, it is absolutely futile. And then the indictment. 
You crucified your Messiah. Now that certainly gets the world rocking and rolling. You are still under the condemnation of God. And by the way, I know you think you're unique, you're special, uh, you're totally the, the only uh, people that, that God loves. Salvation is going to every person on the face of the earth. The gospel is going worldwide. You've lost your unique role and privilege in the economy of God. And then in speaking to the Gentiles, again, the futility of your way of life, the emptiness of idolatry, and you're sinful and you're guilty, and you must repent. And it's not changed that much to the modern world. We're going to run into, if you, if you bore down deep enough, and as I said, the constituent nature of man has not changed. He is still totally depraved. He's still in rebellion against a holy God. He is still resistant to the gospel. He does not want to hear the realities of God's condemnation of who they are and what they do. So we run all right afoul right from the get-go. You're not affirming me. You're not affirming me. You're, you're not just, you know, patting me on the back and telling me I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. The gospel and that which is, again, part and parcel of the gospel, necessary to the gospel, the law, it confronts the reality of real sin. That I really am a rebel against God and I really am guilty. And people still don't want to hear that. And that the, the gospel is both true and it's unique. There's only one gospel. There's only one Savior. And while you're probably most of us, I've told you before, we're not going to run into a lot of atheists, probably. I mean, you, you know, if you go to some college campus, you may run into some knothead. But, but, you know, for the most part, we're not going to run into them too much. You're not going to run into many people say, Well, I just believe there's a loving God. Everybody is going to heaven. Universalism. You, they, you won't find many people that say that. You find a lot of people that live like that, including members of our church. That just everybody's going to get in eventually. Everybody, everybody goes to the better place or the good place. Okay, and so we're still confronting things like universalism, the the idea that there's no need for the gospel. And then I think the mo one of the most damaging things, and we see it in the church, what's called syncretism. And whether you're taking parts of what might be called liberal, and I use the word Christianity in quotation marks, but kind of liberal religion and parts of the Word of God, and you're weaving together your own personal deal, it's still wrong. I don't care what brother so-and-so told you, it's still wrong. Okay, so You still have to be confronted, and you have to recognize it as, as wrong. You can't, and of course, in the, in the broader culture, you know, you're taking, you're watching Oprah, and you're, you're watching Joel, and you're watching this and that and the other, and you come together, and you weave them all together, and yeah, yeah you know, I got this Jesus thing, and my best life now, and, 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 and my own truth, and, you know, and it's hogwash. It's just hogwash. Relativism, relativism subjectivism, again, my own personal way of understanding this. Again, I keep saying this, and y'all don't believe me, okay? Or at least some of you don't. Hear me. It don't matter what you think. 
Ultimately, it does not. Now, now me, because I'm a great and wonderful guy and I'm sensitive and, you know, all of those things. N nurturing caregiver, that's, that's me. I care. I really do. That's not being cynical and sarcastic. I, I really do. But let me tell you something. What I think and what you think ultimately doesn't matter if it is not line by line and point by point what God says. Okay? That's the only thing that matters. And I could be wrong about a thing or two. I hope I'm not. I'm not trying to be. But we'll probably get our theology straightened out when we see Jesus. Okay? But yes. And again, I think the big one, I had several, but we're running out of time. Just nominalism in the church. Just a superficial veneer of Jesus. Just the, 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 the barest one sixty-fourth of one sixty-fourth of an inch of Jesus. Versus uh, Jesus that, as the old saying goes, saved me all over. A Jesus that is my Lord, that defines uh, my life. And so all of these things are going to be problematic. It rubs against the culture. It confronts the culture. It, it indicts a large percentage of the church for what they believe. And so just as the ancient world demanded the courage and the commitment of a man such as the Apostle Paul, it still demands those that will speak with clarity and accuracy, believing the uniqueness and the power of the gospel to change. Because you see, the more things change, and it looks like we're in this world that's just changing rapidly. There's a sense where the important things haven't changed one bit. The important thing is the gospel. A gospel that stings sometimes, but the gospel that is exclusively and uniquely the power of God into salvation, the power of God to turn the world upside down, the power of God to save men and women and boys and girls from their sins. Pray with me. Father, how we thank you for your grace, your mercy, for the power of conviction about sin. Lord, that even as believers, you, you, you remind us daily that we're yours just by the, the power of the Word and Spirit uh, bearing witness in our life. Sometimes we're, we're, there is an affirmation, and yet there's also that reality of, of conviction, of error. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue that work in our lives. And God, give us greater courage and, and boldness. Couple that with the appropriate compassion. Uh, couple that with uh, the knowledge that we need uh, to speak to a world that, that, just like the ancient world, is increasingly hopeless. The more they invent and reinvent and rebel, the, the greater the need for the gospel. The more pervasive the darkness, the greater the display of your light. May we be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.